Um, and we are in John chapter 4, back in the great gospel according to John, uh, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, his ministry, his words, written by or through the proxy of the apostles, those who walked with Jesus, saw him resurrected, etc. And so we are now in chapter 4, and we've just come out of uh, this great account of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the woman who would have been, um, if there were a scale, at the lowest end of the scale of value in that part of the world at that time in history. And Jesus comes to her and says, you're valuable, I see you. I see your sin, but I also am your savior. And, and she tells her whole village, and they come, and many believe in Jesus as the savior of the world. So we've, we're coming right out of that as we enter into verse 43 to the end of the chapter, and that's where we will be today. So let me read it for us, and then I'll give us a little bit of background, and then I've got a few things to say. You ready? This is John's account. After two days, that's two days teaching the Samaritans, because Jesus was on his way from the festival in Jerusalem, the Passover festival, and he's making his way back near his hometown in Galilee, and he stopped in Samaria, taught for two days. It says, after those two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. If you were to go to the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell a very similar account that Jesus, when he went back to his home in the city of Nazareth, that's in Galilee, the region, uh, he was not received well. So John's, remember he's been doing this because he's writing a couple decades after, he's filling in the gaps for us. He's saying, you guys all remember that about Nazareth. That's why Jesus didn't go to Nazareth. He wasn't received well there. Okay, so when he entered Galilee, verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him. The Galileans were excited to see him because, underline because, they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had also gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. That's where he had done his first miracle, his first sign. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill in Capernaum. That's another town about 25 miles away. And that royal official had come to Cana because he had heard that Jesus was back in town. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down. Come down just means, even though it's north, Capernaum, it's downhill. Capernaum's right on the lake of Galilee there. Come down, please, heal, to heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told him, and this is, this is key here. I don't know why this translation translates it in the singular. It's actually a plural. So he told them, both this man, the royal official, those that had come with him. He's the royal official who came with a, a, a crew. And then also all the other Galileans that were around. He told them, all of them, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir. The official said to him, sir, a term of honor, sir, this is a royal official. This guy's at the top of the food chain. Sir, very humbly, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, that's why the royal official was still going down, his servant met him saying that the boy was alive. He asked them, at what time did he get better? Actually, a better uh, translation there is, at what time did he begin to improve? servant said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, 
the fever left him. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now, this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. So, let me give you a little background before I unpack this passage. A couple things that you need to know, or at least will help you know the significance of this encounter. Okay, so we already, already mentioned, the Galileans welcomed him because, remember when we do in cohort, when we study the passage for ourselves, we circle those uh, those so what's or because, so that's, if, clauses, because they are telling us something important. Because of what he had done at the festival in Jerusalem, because they were also there. So what had he done? This is kind of an interesting, because why, why does John bring this up? And we've always said John, ink was very expensive. He's not just thrown, this is not just a long connecting paragraph here. He's trying to tell us something very important about what we're about to read. These Galileans were very excited. What did Jesus do when he was at the festival? Do you remember? He threw over some tables. He made a whip. He called out those who were profiting off of the temple, profiting off of God, profiting off of forgiveness of sin. Called out the high priests. Called out the elites. The elites called them out. It's very important. They were excited about that. Why would they be excited about that? For the same reason that people in eastern Washington love it when people in western Washington have a bad day. <laughs> okay? This is like the country folk against the elite of Seattle. I mean, this is the, they're still, they're, this, they're serving, worshiping one God, but these are different folk. These are people up in the north. And when they hear that the elites got it stuck to them by Jesus, that's my hero. They were excited about that. Yeah, this is a preacher of the people. I was thinking about, I know I often date myself with my references. Nobody will get this. It doesn't matter. You'll get the point, though. There's an old pace uh, salsa commercial. You know Pace? Pace Picante? There's a great old commercial where it was making fun of Tostitos because Tostitos is like corporate New York salsa. And the whole thing's about these country folks saying, Pace Picante, not like that New York City salsa. That's what's going on here. Jesus ain't like that New York City salsa. He's like that Pace Picante. That's the real deal. That's how they felt. They loved it. They welcomed him. This is our guy. Going after the elites. Why is that so important? Jesus has just healed the Samaritan woman, the lowest of the low. Even below, I don't know what's below Tostitos salsa, but whatever's below that, that would be the Samaritan woman. And then you think, oh, he's going to come and he's going to heal a Galilean, one of us. And yet, who does he help next? A royal official. Wait, 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 wait. Now we weren't for that New York City salsa. Jesus said, we're for them too. We're also for them. So who is this royal official? We don't know a lot about him. We don't know his, his ethnicity. Like we don't know if he's a Jew or if he's some other royal official. I'm going to assume he's probably a Jewish royal official. So he's probably from a sect of the Jewish elite. There were several sort of parties, you could say, just like we have several parties in the, of elites in our country. They had, the, they had a group of elites, a very tiny percentage of the elites with all the power and all the money and all the influence. Uh, but then within them, they were uh, distinguished. So you had Pharisees who were sort of uh, stick-to-the-word people, took the, the Bible very seriously. Um, and then another group you had is the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more political animals. They were 
they were uh, a little less interested in sort of the religious part of being Jew, and they're more interested in being sort of the political part, or the Jewish people as a people, and as a political entity. And they actually had, in many cases, uh, more power. So there's a very good chance, scholars believe, this royal official was a part of the Sadducees. And so that would have even made these Galileans a little bit more upset, because these Sadducees, not only were they the elites, but they also were the elites that didn't take the word of God very seriously. That'll be important. These Sadducees were probably bred into wealth, or these Galileans were not. They had to work hard for their food. So, God goes from loving and, and healing and forgiving and bringing into his family sinful Samaritan woman skips over the middle folk and he goes straight and he heals and he helps and he brings into his family a royal official who doesn't even care much about the word of God what's going on the answer is Jesus helps everyone everyone he came for everyone don't miss that in this story these Sadducees would have been like Thomas Jefferson you know what Thomas Jefferson did? Thomas Jefferson took his Bible. He said, I believe in God. But I don't think everything God wrote is true. And he took his Bible and he snipped out and he cut out every account of a miracle. Took it out of his Bible. He said, I believe in this God. Who's a deist. God is there. He's created everything. He set the world to run and it's runs like a clock. That's the clockmaker view of God. We did a sermon series many years ago, like in our second year as a church, uh, called The Universe Next Door, which kind of looked at some of the big, idea, or big worldviews that exist in our world. And you can go, and one of them's called The Clockmaker God. That'd have been the Sadducees. That'd have been Thomas Jefferson. Sure, I believe in God, but let's get rid of those miracles. God's not involved in everyday life. We need to take it into our own hands. And yet God came to save those people as well. Don't miss that. <clears throat> so I'm going to try to show you five things that I didn't see at first when I first read this. You might read this text and you kind of just, okay, that's a nice little miracle story. I've heard that before. But what's so different about this story? I saw five things that I hadn't seen when I first read it. Maybe you saw some of them before I did. So let's go. The five things are going to be, this is the second announcement sign. Okay? This is the second announcement sign. The first was at the wedding. The announcement sign that the kingdom has come. The second is the distinction between temporary faith and saving faith. All of that from this text. The third, distinguishing the who from the how. Which is to say, what is the difference between Christ himself and the benefits of Christ? Fourth thing, when does healing actually begin in our lives? Our faith. And then finally, how does faith change our identity? All of that from this text. So we got to go. Let's have some urgency like I did when Moose escaped the yard. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, the Second announcement sign. So, John has, remember we said, seven, seven signs that he gives in the first half of his gospel. Do you remember what, um, what we said about those signs? The signs are not just meant to be stories of healing. They're announcing something about that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, that Jesus is what? Different. Not just another prophet. Healings had happened before. But what's different about Jesus? And this second sign says something very important about what's different about Jesus. Did you catch it? What's different about this healing story from many that you've probably heard? It's long distance. He doesn't go. He just speaks. Your son will live. And he lives. This dude is different. 
could have been a moment. Not just when it happened, but when people read about this, that's why, remember, John's filling in the gaps. No, no, guys, don't slip into thinking Jesus is just another prophet. This is a different kind of prophet. This prophet just speaks from afar, 25 miles away, and at the moment of his word, life happens. Who does that remind you of? At the moment of his word, life happens. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John said that in the prologue. Genesis 1, and darkness covered the earth, and then God spoke, and life erupted. This is God. When he speaks, life erupts. He's different. It's the second sign. This guy is different. He can heal from a distance. One, one way to look at the end of chapter 4 is it's like the end of the first quarter of Jesus' ministry. Any basketball fans in the room? Okay, I'll pray for you all. Okay, basketball is a great sport. It's got teamwork. It's got hustle. You need it all. Greatest athletes in the world, if you ask me. <clears throat> basketball. I've been watching a little bit of the NBA uh, playoffs. It's like what's happening here at the end of the first quarter of Jesus' ministry. And it's bookended, right, by Cana. We have Cana first sign, Cana second sign. So the literary structure is literally this bookended. Beginning of the first quarter, end of the first quarter. Beginning of the first quarter, the sign is that Jesus loves to party. <laughs> so it's water into wine. And he also wants to purify in a way that the people of God have never been purified. Ryan talked about that beautifully when he talked about why does Jesus use the purification jars to turn the water into wine. Jesus purifies in a way. End of the first quarter. Long distance. This is like runner from half court. Jesus long distance hits it. Just to make you know this dude's different. You ain't going to win this game. Might as well give up after the first quarter. Hits the long distance shot. Jesus heals in a way that no one has ever healed before. He's different. Second announcement time. Okay, so second big thing I see here is this distinction between temporary faith and saving faith. Do you see it? Temporary faith versus saving faith. So the royal official comes. He's heard that this prophet is in town. Most time royal officials can pay their way to health and happiness and safety just like the rich can pay their way to health. But not this time. His son is dying. He knows. No doctor can help him. No amount of money can help him. And he wonders, is this prophet that people have been talking about? He'd heard maybe this rumor about this miracle at Cana. And he hears that this Jesus is back in town. And he says, maybe I'll just go. So his heart is open. He's a considerer, right? His heart is open. He's moved out of the center of his world. And he wonders if there's something else that can bring life besides his power or his title or his access to the best medicine. Maybe there's something else. And so he humbly goes to see this itinerant preacher prophet named Jesus. So he's already moving into humility. It's the prerequisite to faith, right? He's preparing himself to be surprised. And he arrives on the scene. And what does it say? What does it say? Verse 47. He went to him and he pleaded with him to come down and heal his son. He pleaded with him. So, that, so he's, he's bowing himself in humility, pleading this royal official to this dirty itinerant preacher whose dad was a carpenter who had no title and no name, and he's bowing him, he's pleading with him, please come, help me, help me. I need you, Jesus. Help me. Jesus says this strange thing in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Come back to that in a second. The man is relentless. <laughs> He doesn't, he doesn't take that stiff arm from Jesus and stop. He says, no, sir, please come down before my boy dies. That's important. To press through the social awkwardness of that moment, 
when Jesus says, oh, you guys want signs and wonders, to say, I don't care, I want you to heal, is a kind of faith. It's a kind of faith that Jesus then responds to and says, fine, go, your son will live. And it says, the man believed, this is verse 50, what Jesus said to him, and he departed. So to hear these words, go, your son will live, and to then, this guy's been pleading, this guy who has all the power in the relationship, he's a royal official, he could probably have him arrested. He could probably like take him by force and say, you have to come back. That he hears the words, go, your son will live, and says, okay, and he leaves. It's faith. It's real faith. But I'm going to say that that's temporary faith. Why do I say that's temporary faith? If that's where he had ended, just that he believes that this Jesus person has the power to heal, that faith only lasts for this life. I don't think he believed that his son would live forever because of Jesus' word. He just believed enough to go and see if his son was well. And it turns out he was. But this is just a temporary faith. And the way we know that John is distinguishing these two kinds of faith is look at the second time it says that the man believes. So go down now to verse 53. So the father realized that it was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. It says, so he himself believed. It doesn't say in Jesus' words there, does it? Or in Jesus' actions. It just says he believed. And every time John says, and they believed, or and he believed, or she believed, it's always in Jesus as the dude. No qualifier needed. He believed. So something's changed. And I think the thing that's changed is his temporary faith that led to the healing of his son turns into an eternal saving faith, which then he shares with his whole household, and they believe. We'll talk about why that changed in just a second. But the thing I want to focus on here is it's okay What I'm not saying is temporary faith is bad and saving faith is good. What I'm saying is temporary faith often, usually, comes first, followed by saving faith, eternal faith. This is a very common progression. Ryan talked about it a little bit last week. We often come to Jesus needing to have faith enough for the temporary thing that we've come to him for. And in the midst... Jesus is trying to do something far more than just heal. Like, he didn't come just to heal. Like, you're misreading the Gospels if you think that they've written down the healing miracles to say, oh, Jesus wants to heal. Yes, the kingdom is a healed kingdom. So it is like a little snippet, a snapshot of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. Well, there'll be no tears and no pain. No one will have a fever. Yes, But that's not why he came the first time. That's why he's coming the second time. But the first time he came to reveal that in him is the only way to get that. That's why he does the healing. So always in the temporary, as he's building your temporary faith, he's always wanting to move you to a saving faith. Just like he did for the official. Okay. So what is this like? This is like when I get home from work. When I get home from work, my two boys always do the same thing. They run up to me, they instantly and immediately beg me to wrestle with them. <laughs> like they want to wrestle. And I'm tired. I've been having to talk to Pastor Ryan all day, so I'm tired. Just joking. He's in kids, so I know I can do that when he's not here. Okay, so I'm tired. And in my mind, this is what I always say. And I think this is what Jesus is saying when he he sort of lashes out. All you guys want to do is see miracles. Is that all I am to you? That's what I feel like with my boys. Is that all I am to you? Just a giant blob of, uh, uh, of, I was going to say muscle, but something else that you get to run into, hit, punch, scrape, just to get your energy out. 
Is that all I am to you? But then inevitably, what always happens about three minutes later? You can find me on the floor in the living room, getting punched, kicked, scraped, hairs being pulled. Why? Why? Because the relationship is more important to me than them getting it right now. Like one day I hope they see me like I see my father as so much more than just a punching bag. I still punch my dad, by the way, verbally usually. So you just keep doing that. <laughs> but like I see him as so much more. I hope that this temporary faith that they have in me to be a great sparring partner will one day turn into this greater faith that they can trust me for wisdom, for words of life, sacrifice and give whatever it takes that they might flourish and come to know all that God has created them to be. They ain't there yet. They see dad, they think wrestling, they think yay. One day they'll see so much more. So I opt into the temporary even though I know they don't get me or what I'm really about. Doesn't matter. And Jesus does the same. He gives a response to that temporary faith of the official because he knows it will lead to a relationship that will ultimately lead to his saving faith. And he's willing to do that for you too. So still bring to him the temporary things of life, the temporary troubles. Bring them to him. Definitely don't hear me say, don't worry about that. No, you bring them to him and he will answer in such a way that it will bring you into a fuller saving faith if you allow it. Third thing. The who versus the how. The who versus the how. Okay, what do I mean by this? Here's what I mean. Ask yourself this question. What do you believe in? What do you believe in? The in makes all the difference. The in makes all the difference. Do you believe in healing? Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe in meditation? Do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe in corporate worship? Do you believe in fill in the blank? Or do you believe in Jesus? What do you believe in? When the man comes to Jesus, he believes in healing. He believes it's possible, even though he's a Sadducee. When tragedy hits his family, when tragedy hits your family, you'll know what you believe in. And he believes in healing. So it comes to Jesus. He doesn't believe in Jesus yet, but he believes in healing, that it's possible. And he's heard about this guy, that if anybody could do it, it might be this guy. So he believes in healing. Then he comes to Jesus, and Jesus gives him this first little nudge. All you guys come to see is miracles and wonders, signs and wonders. That's all, all you guys want. But he presses through, and he starts to believe in more than just healing generally. And he starts to believe in Jesus just a little bit. Why do I, why do I say that? Look at verse 48. Okay, so when the man, uh, I'll start at verse 47 actually. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. So maybe he's just like a better doctor than any other doctor. But he believes in healing. Jesus told him, and the crowd, unless you people believe or see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus didn't ask him to believe, he asked him to heal. Jesus changes the conversation. I believe that this man coming back to Jesus again is him saying, I believe that you can heal. So he's shifting from I believe in healing to I believe you can heal, Jesus. 
says, sir, please come down before my boy dies. He's saying, I believe enough. Then what does it say? Verse 50. Go, Jesus told him. Your son will live. Or your son is alive, could be the translation, depending on which translation you have. And it says the man believed in healing, in the healing promise. No, he believed in what Jesus said, depending on your translation. He believed in the words of Jesus to him, and he departed. He didn't say, come with me, Jesus. He didn't say, show me, prove it to me that he's already healed, then I'll let you go. No, he says he believed in the words of Jesus, and he went. That's temporary belief for temporary healing, but it's real faith. And that faith is rooted in not healing generally, but in Jesus generally. At least Jesus as the healer. So, later we'll see the man believe not just in the words of Jesus, but what? In Jesus, period. And that's a whole nother level of belief. But at least here he believes in the words of Jesus alone. I love this. I love this. We always want to know how, how, how. How does Jesus heal? How does he do this? How will he bring the kingdom? How did God raise him from the dead? How, 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 how? And we always got to turn from the how to the who. The who is what's important. We need to believe not in the how, but in the who. In Jesus. In Christ. He says, what did Jesus say? He said, y'all only believe if you see with your own eyes signs and wonders. If that's the only way you can believe anything, that's not even belief. That's basically what he's saying. Seeing a sign and wonder and then saying, yeah, sign and wonders are possible, that's not belief. That's just seeing. He's saying, you don't believe in the healer. You believe in your own eyes. See what he's saying? That's why he brings that strange thing up to the whole crowd. He's saying, you, if you need that to believe, you don't actually believe in anything other than the thing you see. You believe in, in signs and wonders. He's saying, I want you to believe in a way that you've never believed before. And he starts to see the royal official do that. Thomas Jefferson started to do that. A new kind of faith welled up in him. Where he started to say, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in you so much that you only had to say the words and I know it will happen. He gets it as a royal official. He understands that there's a type of person that when you give an order, it will happen. He's that kind of person. And he believes that Jesus is that kind of person. That when he says life is coming, he knows life is coming. That's belief. Beautiful, isn't it? You see that? The royal official trusts in the words of God enough that he leaves knowing it's true. At least knowing enough to go. This is what it is, to believe in someone rather in just the thing they can produce. Quick illustration. I got some good friends here, foodies, they know this one. When you meet a great chef, you don't say to the chef, Chef, I've got this fabulous recipe. If you could just prepare it just like so-and-so has prepared it in the past, I know it'll be good. You don't. You trust the chef. You say, make me whatever, and you know it's going to be good, right? You just say, bring me the chef special. And you eat it, knowing it's going to be great even if you've never had it before. In that sense, you believe in the who, in the chef. Whatever he cooks, 
Now, with Jesus, it goes even a little bit further. So I'm going to extend the analogy. There's another step that Jesus wants to take us on. It'd be like this. It'd be like that you believe so much in the chef that you went to the chef and you said, Chef, I believe in you so much. Here's my taxes. Could you figure this out for me? <laughs> like you believe in the chef. Like this chef is the chef. He's probably great at taxes too. That's with Jesus. Even if we've never experienced the benefit of the thing we trusted him for the first time, we know he can do whatever needs to be done. That's what trust in Jesus is. Like if you have chef friends, I don't recommend giving your taxes to them. They're probably not very good, but Jesus can handle it. That's what faith in Jesus is like. You don't know how he's going to do it, but you just know he's the dude. So the royal official becomes this great example of the proper kind of belief in the who rather than the how. He doesn't ask, well, how are you going to do it? Just belief in the who. I love this. He presses past this important rebuke of Jesus to the crowd, and he moves closer to Jesus, closer, more intimate, more connected. And he says, please. And while the royal official's faith was not yet what it would be in verse 53, where he just believes, period. This still shows the movement from, give me some of that magic, Jesus, to please help me, Jesus. Do what only you can do. How do we know he's trusting Jesus and not just miracles or just the magic? I think this is, this is really important. It might feel like I'm repeating myself. I'm not repeating myself. This is a really important thing when you're doing this in your own heart to know if you're trusting in Jesus or if you're trusting in his magic. Jesus doesn't do magic. <laughs> Jesus does Jesus. But here's how I know this guy's not trusting. And the key is that no sign is given. The first time I read this, I didn't see the importance of there was no sign given the man simply trusts his word i'll take you at your word which is to say there's no collateral this is here's a truism the more collateral you need the less belief you have in that person so i remember i went to my dad one time and i said dad i need some money to buy a ring for ali i was in seminary he said, how much do you need? I said, this much. He said, here you go. And he, get, he, he wrote me a little email. He said, here's the loan. And I said, well, what kind of collateral do you need? He said, well, you need collateral. I know you're good for it. He trusts me. You go to a bank. Say, bank, we'd like to borrow this amount of money to purchase this building. They say, great, we'll take the building as collateral. The whole thing. They don't trust me at all. I said, you don't know my people. They're great people. <laughs> you can trust them. They say, I don't know your people. <laughs> we need the whole thing. Okay, okay. Well, um, let's see. We're going to make sure this thing's worth what we're paying for. The bank needs full collateral because the bank doesn't trust anyone, which is why the bank always makes money. No relationship. I remember when I was 22 years old, I was working for a company in the summer to make a little extra money. I was an undergrad, and this company sent me on a sales trip to Texas. They say, figure out your own rental car. You're going to be driving all over Texas. If you don't know, Texas is a huge state. It was very hot in the summer. And the only place that would rent me a car, because I was under 25, was a company called Rent-A-Rack. Every time I rent a car, Rent-A-Rack. It's like, they're smart. They don't trust anyone under 25 with a rental car. They know what they're doing. And I think I had to, like, promise one of my kidneys as collateral. They don't trust us as because they're smart. So the amount of collateral you need will tell you how much you trust. So if you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with my life. I just need you to give me a little sign. Just give me something now. Just a little collateral so that I know I'm not making a bad bet. It just shows you you've got some work to do to see Jesus clearly for who he is. The word became flesh 
the one at the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and nothing was made that did not come through him. He is the majesty and the glory of God, come in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the fullness of God in man. You don't see him clearly. If you saw him, you wouldn't need any sign or any wonder. You'd take him at his word. The word's word is as good as gold. The royal official got it. Do you get it? Do you trust God's word as his word? Or do you say, give me a little collateral. Give me a little sign to tell me I'm not making a mistake. Until you get to where the royal official is, I believe you might not see the fullness of God's power manifest in your life. Because you're not quite trusting him as the word. Okay. Ask yourself this question. Do you believe in the benefits of Jesus or do you believe in the benefactor? Do you believe in the healing or the healer? Do you believe in the provision or the provider? Everything that is good, that flows from Jesus, is always attached to Jesus. Let me say that again. Everything that is good that flows from Jesus is forever attached to Jesus. You cannot have the benefits of Jesus without Jesus. But often we work backwards. I want the benefits detached from the benefactor. I want the provision of Jesus or God detached from the provider who is Jesus and God. You can't detach the benefits from the benefactor. It's impossible. Just think, uh, Ryan and I went to a reconciliation conference for pastors. Really great time, powerful time at SPU. And they said this, and I, I thought, of all the things that were said, it was a beautiful thing to be said. If we want racial reconciliation in our world, in our churches, in our communities, but we try to get racial reconciliation or detach it from reconciliation, we will always fall short. And you can't have any kind of reconciliation without the reconciler, who is God himself. I mean, we see it here. He's reconciling Samaritan woman with Jewish men. He's reconciling royal official elites with farmers from up north. Like, the reconciler is the only reason we have reconciliation, which begins with God and man, and then flows down to every form of reconciliation. Racial reconciliation. Denominational reconciliation. You name it. Every kind of reconciliation flows from the reconciler, and you cannot have the thing, the benefit, without the benefactor. Does that make sense? And so make sure when you're worshiping Jesus, you're not worshiping the benefits of Jesus, or worshiping racial reconciliation, but you're worshiping the reconciler. If you get that backwards, you'll miss out on the thing that you never want to miss out on, which is Jesus himself, Christ himself. Christ alone is where all the benefits flow from. You cannot detach them. I heard it said this way in a book I was reading this week. The gospel is Jesus Christ himself Wrapped in the gospel message. Jesus himself wrapped in the gospel message. You can't have the gospel message of forgiveness of sin, of, of new life, of resurrection, of reconciliation, of adoption into the family of God. You can't have any of that stuff without Christ himself. So you grab hold of Christ and the benefits come with it. Don't get it backwards. You want the word himself, come what may. You want the benefit, but you don't want the benefactor. If that's you, reconsider. Reconsider. You want the benefactor, whatever the benefits may come. Okay. How far did I get? Okay, that's number three. Number four, the last, that was my big one, so the last two are shorter, okay? So let's keep reading, let's get back in the text, starting at verse 50. Verse 50, Jesus said, go, 
your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus had said. He believed in his word. And they, then he departed. Now, while he was going down, while he was headed to Capernaum, which is like 25 miles away. And what, a really interesting point, if you didn't catch it, is it says the next day, which means he slept that night. That's <laughs> how much he believed. He didn't travel through the night. He's a royal official. 25 miles on foot might have taken all night and into the next day, but this guy's a royal official. He probably had a chariot. So he stays the night, and then he goes the next day. And while he's going down, his servant met him and said that the boy is alive. And this is so key. I love this. The royal official doesn't just say, yes, praise God, praise Jesus. What does he say? He asked them at what time he got better. Who cares? It matters. You see, this man is now moving away from just, I believe in healing. I want healing, however it may come. But I need to go to this guru or this healer. No, no, no. He's starting to say, holy smokes. What time did that happen? His faith is moving from temporary towards saving. Who cares? No, I care. When did it happen? Tell me exactly when it happened. And what does he say? He says, it happened yesterday at one in the afternoon. The fever left him like that. It left him. The father, verse 53, realized that's the very hour that Jesus told him, your son will live. So he himself believed. He hadn't even seen his son yet. He himself believed, period. Destined to believe. That's the Messiah. That's the one we've been waiting for, along with his whole house. We'll get to that in point five. But when does the healing begin? This man is considering, I love this, and this will be important for point five. He's considering the exact nature of God's gift. Not, not just receiving it, thank you God. He's, he's like, let me consider this more deeply. When did it happen? At what point did it happen? And he realizes it was the exact moment that it was truly that the word spoke and life erupted. And that's what led him to saving faith. This is so important. To get to temporary faith, from temporary faith to saving faith, takes deep consideration. Like you may have believed at one level to get to here, but to get to here takes more consideration. Never stop considering. Keep considering the mystery of God. And he'll reveal new elements that will take you from temporary faith to saving faith. That's what this guy's doing. I love that he asked the question, when did it happen? When you can't understand it, ask more questions. I remember this happened for me. Uh, if you've been here a while, you know, uh, after Grayson was born, uh, Allie got pregnant and we miscarried. And then she got pregnant again about a year later with Owen. And we went into the doctor and we were so nervous that we'd hear the same words that we heard in the pregnancy before. And we were overjoyed because they heard a heartbeat. And then the doctor pulled us into a side room and said, um, I know we heard a heartbeat, but the child is measuring three or four weeks smaller than they should, unless you forgot when you got pregnant. And we're like, no, we remember. And the look on the doctor's face was like, I think your child is not going to make it. She said, let's, let's come back in a couple weeks and see what, what happens. We were headed to uh, a trip. Actually, we were going to Hawaii. And we don't know if it was the Hawaiian barbecue or the prayers of God's people. <laughs> but we came back. I think we had a three weeks later, and we came into the doctor's office, and we were just expecting bad news. But we still had this. We had a strange piece about us. And the doctor did the ultrasound, did the measurements, and she came back into the room, and she said, her eyes were like big like this. She's like, I don't. Uh, know what to, to tell you, but your child is now like a week bigger than, than, than he should be based on the conception date. And we were like, whoa, what happened? And we pressed in. I want to know the exact nature of God's miracle. It was a miracle. 
but I want to know the exact nature. So I pressed into the doctor. Tell me, how many times has this happened to you before? Like, how rare is a miracle like this? She said, I've been practicing for a decade or whatever it's been. I've never seen this before. Whoa. This is a special kind of a miracle. I said to her, whoa, could you give any possible other explanations? And she said, no, except maybe I got it wrong. But then she said, but I double-checked and I triple-checked because I knew when I brought that news to you three weeks ago, it would crush you. So she's like, I don't know. <laughs> and so being a pastor, I said, could it have anything to do with the fact that I have the whole church praying for us? And she got really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I said, there you go, there's my answer. It's God. It's God. The only thing that explains this is God. That's what the man's doing. Tell me, what time did it happen? Not like a few hours later, like the exact moment, he's God. You got to consider a little more deeply sometimes to move that temporary faith to a safe faith. So when does healing begin? Healing begins when God speaks and you listen and you trust. So if you were able to look back on your life, now I'm moving from physical healing to spiritual healing. Though the physical's included, the mental's included, the emotional, God wants to heal it all. But if you were able, for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, if you were able to identify the exact moment that you started believing God at his word, I can almost guarantee you'd, start, you'd be able to track from that point a general upward trajectory towards health. And what's important, remember I told you, it, it, it gets it a little bit wrong, I think, here, where it says... They, he asked him what time he got better. It's, the Greek actually says, began to improve. So when you begin to believe and trust in the word of God, without collateral, and say, I trust you, God, so I will do what you say in your word. I will trust you, even though I don't understand how it works, but I'm going to trust you. If you could map that out, you would see that when you trust in God's word, in God's word without collateral, you would start to see that healing has begun. Healing has begun. And it might be decades later that you realize that healing began back then, when I went from God as I want your benefits to God as I want you, benefactor, and I trust you. But when you start trusting him at his word, at that very moment, healing begins, even if it takes a lifetime for you to recognize it. Do that with your own story. Ask yourself that question. Did healing begin when I started to engage with God differently and trust him at his word, even if I didn't understand why he said it that way or how he would do it? Did you start to experience spiritual healing, which will then lead to physical healing and mental and emotional healing, relational healing, because you trusted God at his word and just did what he said? That's when healing begins. Final thing I want, I want you to see here real quick. This, this is kind of beautiful, so I can't just not do it. How does your faith change your identity? Hey, you might, I didn't see this. Hey, very close to, okay, the progression here. What is, the, what is the title that John gives to the royal official at the very beginning? Royal official, okay? You see it? Royal official. This is the title that the world has given him. This is how he relates to the world. This is who he is to the world. This is his identity. He's a royal official. Then, after the man comes, look at verse 50, and humbles himself before Jesus, what is the title that John describes him as? Look at verse 50. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. He could have said here, the royal official believed what Jesus said to him. Or he could have just said, he believed. Instead, he picks a new noun. The man. The elite, 1% powerful royal official is now just a man. Humbled at the foot 
of Jesus. He's just a man. He's just a man. Just like everyone else. Desperate and in need. Humbled and in faith. Starting to believe. He's just as a man. Now look. Oh, this is so good. Once his eyes are totally and fully opened to who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God, the giver of life, for the first time in the narrative, John calls him what he's been all along, and we've seen elements of this. He clearly believes and, and loves his child so much so, right? So he's been acting like a father, but yet John's never called him a father until this moment. Why? Look at it, verse 53. Not the man, not the royal official, but the father. Again, he could have said he realized, or the man realized, or the world. You know, he's, John's telling us something. The father realized that this was the very hour which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed. And then, it says, along with his whole household. What's happening? John's saying. This royal official who the world says is great, who the world has a great purpose and calling and mission, has to become a man and realize he's like everyone else until he gets a new title, which is a father. And what is a father? A father is one who takes the faith he's come to know personally and takes it to the rest of his family, teaches them who Jesus is, what Jesus has come to do, and convinces them to put their faith in Jesus. That's what it means to be a father in God's economy. The father is the bringer of true belief in Jesus into his family. And he's a royal official, so this is the, the household is not just his kids, but also his servants. Everyone comes to believe, John says, because. The father's become the father of faith in his family. This is true for moms too, especially if you're a single mom. But, but for you young men or you young fathers in the room or your old fathers in the room, if you don't take serious the consideration of the person of Jesus Christ, I beg you, get serious about this. God wants to give you a new identity that you can be a father of faith to your whole household. But you have to take serious the consideration. At what hour? God, what are you doing here? Why did you do it this way? You have to dig deep. And if you say, I don't really care about myself, don't do it for yourself. Do it for your family. Consider for your family. What are you going to teach your children when they come of age? What are you going to teach the young men or Young women that you have authority over, who are working in your house, how are you going to tell them to believe? In what or in who? Take serious consideration because God wants to make you a father of faith for not just your own biological children, but for the people he'll bring into your life and into your household over your life that you might become like the royal official who had to become just a man before he could become father of faith. What a privilege. So I don't know what struck you personally today. Maybe, maybe, oh, maybe. Okay, maybe God doesn't want me to give you these conclusions. Are we good? <laughs> okay. Whatever spoke to you today, I didn't rip off my last piece of paper. So, God wants to do something for you. Oh, here it is. He, maybe he wants you to see that he's, Jesus is different. That he's God. That his word can heal from a distance. Maybe he wants you to, to, to know that you need to move your temporary faith into saving faith. Maybe, maybe you need to believe not in the benefits of God or Jesus, but to trust in the benefactor himself. Maybe you need to move your faith to faith in Jesus. Or maybe you need to meditate on your own story and see that it's true that true healing began when you started to treat God and his word differently. 
and trust him at his word, even if you didn't understand how it all played out. Or maybe you need to start believing that God has a new identity for you. Not the identity the world gave you, not even the identity when you see yourself as raw and unable to do anything on your own, but as one who is filled with the calling and purpose that God has given you to take faith and to take the benefits of Christ and share them with the world because Christ is in you and Christ is with you. Let's pray.